0: Before I begin, I, I should say that uh, I'm a substitute, and I only accepted to give this paper under the <laughs> and, uh,
1: and, uh, and, and I had this, uh,
0: this, this, this unpublished paper on, 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 on and the ways in which settler colonial studies can help an original understanding of uh, Palestine. And, um, and, uh, and then I, I realized that I don't have enough time to read it all, so I will read for you only the very boring bits. <laughs> um, before before I begin, I should also say that um, Palestine was on it's mind, always. Um, and that uh, it, it, it is important. To, to stress that uh, he's, uh, he his scholarly endeavor he was global but um, uh, w- was intent on making sense of Pakistan um so the bit I'm gonna read it's um, it's entitled zombie exceptionals if you, if you watch TV in this country and I watch a lot of TV in these countries okay, in general zombies are all over the place so it's important to, to, to contextualize the way that this contribution is coming from. So I would like to suggest in these notes that a settler colonial studies paradigm may contribute to an original understanding of Zionism and because it explodes Zionist exceptionalist narratives. It explodes exceptionalism. First of all, Zionism was never meant to be an exercise in exceptionalism. It was dedicated to the fundamental rejection of a state of exception. Settlement was Herzl's response to anti-Semitism. He thought that Jews would be excellent settlers, better than other settlers elsewhere, and that by doing, would respond to systematic fabrications about being. In this respect, Herzl's approach was similar to that of Marx. Marx had famously argued that the Jewish question would be extinguished through full assimilation. These would have have meant, would have required, um, would have amounted to a revolution. Herzl did not want a revolution, famously, and thought that integration without revolution could only be achieved outside of Europe, where Jews would do what Europeans typically do outside of Europe and thus fully become Europeans. Politional displacement and settlement were Herzl's alternative to the prospect of assimilation as revolution. In this, he was indeed an original, one among many to offer displacement as an alternative to growing revolutionary tensions. Thus, settlement was not a means to an end. And Zionism was not primarily about the state. Zionism was primarily about settlement. In this context of type of In in the context of a type of figurative practice, it was the and the state was an afterthought. Settlement, nothing else, was the absolute core of Zionist practice. Settlement studies can thus help dissenter the state from the analysis of Zionism as an historical phenomenon. This focus on the act of settlement and its redeeming charge ostensibly. Uh, rather than the outcome, was common in the context of what has been called the global settler revolution. And um, if James Bellich, theorist of um, the global settler revolution, focused on the 19th century, the history of Zionists demonstrate that the settler revolution lasted longer than we generally assume, not that Zionism was exceptional. The relationship between the political traditions of settler colonialism in general and the state. Is indeed fraught. Settler colonies often resulted in strong states, but this was often not their original purpose. The settlers that displaced to the various frontiers of settlement during the Age of the Settler Revolution and understood their movement as endowed with inherent sovereign capabilities were actually and often escaping consolidating sovereigns. The Zionists who similarly moved to Palestine had very good reasons to escape consolidating sovereigns. The branches of this is Anyone acquainted, for example, with the contestations pitting federalists and anti-federalists and their successes during the early Republic era in the US would recognise a centrifugal tendency. The settler's loyalty to their sovereigns is always conditional to their being distant and remain so, except when they are needed for, to fend off geopolitical challenges mounted by resisting indigenous people. The settlers' loyalty is not absolute. Settlement is. States can promote settlement for their own purposes. They often do, especially imperial states, busy managing a variety of ethnic collectives. But states ultimately promote themselves. They are their own primary concern. States control populations, all populations, even if they very rarely control them as equals. Settlement as a political form, however, is primarily about the selective reproduction of one social political collective in the place of another. Zionist understandings of history as heading inex- inexorably towards the establishment of the state fundamentally misunderstand Zionism as settlement. Settlement is a very particular social formation. Unlike states, settlements aim to supersede themselves. For example, they aim to extinguish indigenous presence and autonomy, tame the wilderness, establish the institution of a settled community, etc. Settler colonial studies can allow an original reflection on the contradiction between settlement and states and on occupations. A very particular colonial form developed by the US after the Mexican War and perfected in the context of a century and a half of overseas interventions that, like settler colonialism, is aimed at superseding itself, but in the case of the colonial occupation of the Palestinian territory. So, it is not only about the centering the state by focusing on settlement. A settler colonial studies paradigm is also useful in understanding whose sovereignty exactly <coughs> underpins a specific political formation. In the context of a comparative global analysis of settler colonial circumstances, Belich offered another category that can be profitably applied to interpreting current developments in Israel and Palestine. Recolonization. His, Belich's argument upturned received narratives of settler colonial national and economic development, constructed around independent foundation followed by independent destiny. In Belich's analysis, the settler project was born independent and isolated, that is, free from external structures of domination but has subsequently become dependent and subsumed in international circuits of trade following the end of sustained booms. He was thinking about New Zealand and Australia at the end of the 19th century, and his analysis has proven, proven contentious, but a focus on the recolonization of settler colonial projects can indeed be useful to the interpretation of current Israeli circumstances and the way they shape the conflict. Zionism, by definition, was about establishing a country of some Jewish people, those who would move to Palestine. This is not unprecedented. Settler colonial projects are, by definition, undertakings that represent the political aspirations of their settlers. It seems important to remark on the way in which current contestations surrounding the state of the Jewish people formula replicate debates surrounding the position of the 13 colonies during the Revolutionary War in North America. Royalists and loyalists claimed that the colonies were the indivisible property of the whole of the British nation, as represented by the in Parliament. The settlers of the colonies begged to differ, dressed up as Indians, had a tea party, and established the most successful settler colonial politics of all. Both contenders were denying the ultimate validity of indigenous claims. Um, Needless to say the North American settler patriots did not fight for their rights as uh, for the rights of all as freeborn Englishmen or for the rights of all freeborn Englishmen. They fought for their own specific rights as freeborn Englishmen and nobody else's. The recurring prospect of making Israel the country of all Jews however this category may be defined produces an inevitable recolonization effect that subjects Jewish Israelis to the political determinations of others. This is never good news for a settler colonial project. And the settler colonial studies paradigm enables us to qualify Zionist claims about indigeneity. These are inevitably fraud claims, and all settlers claim in some ways to be or to have become indigenous or to be returning French rule in North Africa was meant to be a return to one of the pradles of Western Christianity. Uh, The 20,000 peasant colonizers that the Italian fascists sent to Libya were also returning to Italy's shore, and to imperial destiny. Even Minnesota settlers believed that indigenous peoples had exterminated the Vikings who had arrived there first, (laughs) and even when settler priority cannot possibly be argued, like in Australia and New Zealand, settlers have recurrently fantasised about indigenous peoples descending from displaced Aryan tribes in a way that makes the descendants of the settlers' ancestors indigenous to the land. The list could be much more extended, but one could sense a pattern. Settlers want indigeneity. Probably unaware of this transnational convergence, Haaretz's journalist Bradley Burston rhetorically asked, if Jews are not indigenous here, in Israel and Palestine, does that mean that Jews can never be indigenous anywhere? This question is worth noting not because it is uniquely insightful, but because it is often repeated. Pace Burston, this rhetorical question has a straight answer. And settler colonial studies can illustrate this point. Irrespective of whether specific populations in discrete historical eras are biologically linked, the very notion of a promised land, a notion all settlers moving towards their homelands entertain, makes it so. People that are promised land somewhere else constitute, by definition, a socio political collective that is necessarily organized before and elsewhere, as good a definition of being exogenous as any. One cannot celebrate the movement to the land and understand oneself as <coughs> always having been there. This is the logic that is inherent to specific stories that define a particular settler-colonial project. Even in its not-religious version, Zionism, like all settler-colonialism, sees itself as reenacting a biblical story. Zionists are not indigenous to the land. They entertain an historical, that is, an ontological relationship to it. It is a meaningful relationship, but it is not that of an indigenous collective. settler colonial studies can help going beyond paralyzing assumptions about opposing national narratives. The narratives are not opposed because they are similar, symmetrical, and mutually exclusive. They are opposed because they are ontologically different, incommensurable, and asymmetrical. and therefore actually compatible. Indigenous and settler claims that are equally construed as legitimate coexist today in a variety of settler polities in the context of the so-called politics of recognition. neo Neo-Zionist commentator Uri Elitzer concluded one of his interventions is an arch settler, uh, is a late arch settler. Remarking that, and I'm quoting, without the story from the Bible, we are a colonial European settlement in the Middle East. Bible aside, and yet that the biblical story is that of a pre-constituted polity, that is, of a polity that is constructed elsewhere, should be apparent. And it is significant that the law-giving episodes are free and that they all happen outside of the promised land, in Sinai, Exodus, in the wilderness, Leviticus numbers, and at the edge of the promised land, Deuteronomy. Many commentators insist that the settler colonial studies' paradigm denies the Jews' historical claim. But by the very nature, historical claims are incompatible with place-based existence, which is a good definition of what indigenous life is. Historical claims are about returning to history, about the expression of political agency through time. There is nothing unique or necessarily wrong with this type of collective political existence, but pointing settler colonialism out is definitely not a negation of historical claims. On the contrary, it is precisely a recognition that Zionism has nothing but historical claims, and therefore is not an indigenous movement. Ellis's argument was premised on reasserting a unique relationship between Jewish land and people. Some have even argued that this relationship is defined by aboriginality, and many Zionist Canadians are actually arguing that Jews are aboriginal to the land. Um, These claims misconstrue the Bible, in particular the part when there is a collective movement from one place to another, and neglect the actual histories of European settlement overseas in particular the part where there are collective sovereign movements from one place to another, exceptionalist claims that rely on circular repetition have no actual life of Iran. Hence, they could be called zombie claims. In actual fact, it is actually the other way around, and it is precisely because of the Bible that Zionism has built a colonial European settlement in the Middle East. A settler colonizer cannot be indigenous. They are forever and asymptotically indigenizing without going native. Right. All settlers face this predicament and associated ambivalences, unlike other colonial sojourners who dream of returning back home and do not mind remaining aloof. But being subjected to indigenizing processes or actively shaping them is not the same as being indigenous. It is its very opposite. One mode of being rules the other out. This is why settlers can never become natives. Even decolonization cannot turn settlers into indigenous. Indigeneity thus becomes a crucial ideological battle. The primary reason why denying someone else's indigeneity is important from a settler point of view is that it relieves the settler project of the burden of effective indigenization. This is the settler's colonial logic. If no one is indigenous, then the settler claim is as good as the indigenous one. Except that settler colonialism is made of domination and displacement. And the focus on displacement in this instance is specifically designed to redirect attention from ongoing structures of power. In the context of this discussion, and to emphasize Palestinian indigeneity, we need to focus on a specific mode of domination and on the relationships it produces It is the settler that brings the native into existence, noted Fanon. Of course, what he meant is that it is the settler that brings the native into existence as native. There is no indigeneity without settler colonialism, and there is no settler colonialism without indigeneity. Palestinians are indigenous because they understand themselves as originating from their country, because they entertain an ontological relationship with it, and because they are subjected to the domination of a social-political collective that, on the contrary, has a historical relationship to it. Denying indigeneity is usually performed either by saying that a particular collective originates from somewhere else, that is, it never was indigenous and that they have actually come from somewhere else at a particular point in time, and therefore they have an historical relationship to the land, just like the settlers. Or by emphasizing that that particular collective is no longer indigenous, that it no longer lives as a collective in the same way it was living when it was indigenous, and that they are an historical collective, just like the settlers. Either way, these denials are premised on constructing a discontinuity between past and present. In other words, the settler says, you may be indigenous now, but you were not indigenous then, and therefore you're not indigenous. The settler says, you were indigenous then, but you're no longer indigenous now, and therefore you're not indigenous. These arguments understand indigeneity as predicated on history, which is how the settlers aim to achieve their indigeneity. Settlers want indigenous land, as well as the ways in which indigenous people own the land. In exchange, they will offer what the settlers have, history. On the contrary, indigeneity is not premised on history. Indigenous people have a history, of course, but their indigeneity does not depend on it. They are indigenous irrespective of their historical experience. Besides, by issuing these claims, the settler collective only proves that the indigenous counterpart is indeed indigenous. This claim can only be made in the context of a settler colonial relation, in which there is a motive to deny indigeneity, and there is a relationship of domination that makes that denial enforceable. This is my last paragraph, so I'll finish yeah, you know. <laughs> The crucial question for settler colonial movements, whether they admit to their settler coloniality and indeed whether they do not, is how to be effective and convincing indigenizers. One efficient way to do so is to craft appropriate foundational stories. A more legitimate claim to indigeneity, even if not an unqualified one, can be acquired asked Sir Walter Scott, who knew a thing or two about foundational stories and knew that the descendants of Britain's rulers were not indigenous and yet was interested in retroactively legitimising their rule when he wrote Ivanhoe. Or asked Virgil, who sought exogenous legitimacy for an indigenous polity and made sure that settler Aeneas married the daughter of the Latin king, Lavinia. Croesus, Aeneas' wife, disappears in the mayhem of Troy's destruction and is presumed dead. He, Aeneas, is devastated but free to remarry after she appears to him as a specter predicting his imperial destiny. The Aeneid Aeneid is a very crucial story. (laughs) Narratives that sustain the notion of political accommodation with an indigenous polity are absolutely necessary to settler indigenizations. They can sustain very solid settler colonial projects but there cannot be genuine settler indigenization without a recognition of indigenous collective existence and legitimacy. This is why, like for extending rights, for Zionist indigenizing purposes, recognizing rather than foreclosing an indigenous Palestinian sovereignty would be a more effective approach than the current reliance on foreclosure. It is in this sense that I have argued for moving on from a zero-sum conceptions of the conflict. An understanding of the settler colonial situation as applied to Israel and Palestine can be beneficial for both settlers and indigenous people. As more appropriate foundational stories should be told, some stories may be abandoned. The law of return, for example, is premised on a particular (coughs) narrative that inhibits settler indigenization precisely because it declares that an exogenous element is as much indigenous as one that has already indigenized. This story undoes the work of settler colonialism. The notion of a state of the Jews similarly forecloses settler indigenization by preemptively declaring that all Zionist indigenizing efforts are ultimately futile. So here is my response to some of the papers that were presented yesterday. Patrick's focus on settler colonialism can help in dialogic conjunction with other paradigms, and I should um, emphasize in dialogic conjunction, can help um, uh, making sense of settler colonialism and of departures from it.